stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Thursday afternoon. The way to reach us in Calgary, 403-974-8255 in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. A lot to get to uh, in this hour, but I want to have a conversation around Canada's foreign policy and how we respond to national security threats, how and whether we stand for our interests, how and whether we stand with our allies. It feels like we're at a bit of a crossroads here. Obviously, we've got some difficult decisions to make with regard to our policy toward China. Maybe that's going in the right direction. We saw this week Canada follow the lead of the U.S., U.K., and others in uh, announcing a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing. You know, it's, it's not as powerful a statement as it could have been through a full boycott, but it's, it's something. Got a decision to make with regard to uh, Huawei, of course. We did have a story this week, by the way. Uh, that CSIS has warned the federal government that China's efforts to influence media outlets in Canada, distort the news, spread disinformation, have, quote, become normalized and have become more sophisticated, frequent, and insidious. Now, on the other side of it, too, we've got some challenges around Russia. Most notably and most imminently, the possibility of an incursion into an invasion of Ukraine. Now, this all comes as the U.S. is hosting more than 100 global and civil leaders. Uh, The U.S. summit on democracy, and certainly democracy has taken a hit in recent years. Obviously, China, Russia, among those not invited to this uh, summit and not happy about this summit. But here's an opportunity for Canada to show that this matters. Our foreign policy is going to reflect that. We're going to stand with our allies. Well, joining us to talk about uh, these challenges, and they are they are many. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Marcus Kolga, Senior Fellow of the McDonald laurier Institute, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad, and founder of DisinfoWatch.org. Marcus, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. It does feel like, for a lot of reasons, this is kind of a big moment uh, for Canada and uh, Canadian foreign policy and in which way it's going to go. What, what do you make of you know, all of these challenges sort of presenting themselves all at once here. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very important time for geopolitics uh, at all. I mean, it feels like the world is burning around us there. And, you know, as you mentioned, Russia has amassed uh, 115,000, if not more troops on, on, on Ukraine's borders uh, to its east, to its south, to its north. It's essentially surrounded uh, Ukraine and is clearly, uh, trying to intimidate uh, the Ukrainian people and uh, and test the mettle of Canada and its and its NATO o- allies, uh, staring us down, if you will, uh, to see if we'll blink. Um, and it, it surely does seem, at least uh, right now, after the Biden and Putin call, that we may indeed have blinked, given some of the concessions that we made to Vladimir Putin. We don't know yet what Vladimir Putin has agreed to, but we do know that that uh, Joe Biden has uh, agreed uh, not to send any troops to Ukraine, uh, you know, despite the fact that Ukraine has asked the United States and Canada to do so. Mm-hmm. Canada has also said that we're not sending troops. Um, you know, there are, he, uh, Putin is being rewarded by Biden with direct consultations with uh, a handful, select handful of, of NATO members, France, Germany, and for some reason, Italy. Canada is not included in that group. 
Uh, and just this afternoon, we're learning that uh, that uh, Joseph Biden may have uh, asked and is warning the, the Ukrainians that they may need to cede some of their territory in the in the east uh, to Vladimir Putin. So, um, you know, I'm seeing some tweets from uh, leaders, uh, political leaders in Eastern Europe, suggesting a new Munich. Uh, style appeasement uh, on behalf of the the president. So, you know, while that's happening, you know, China is also uh, a hot issue, of course, with uh, with the genocide occurring in in Xinjiang and the Olympics coming up. And so, uh, Canadian foreign policy it doesn't seem like there's a co- coherent strategy at this point, and uh, and there are a lot of important decisions to be made. And it remains to be seen if this government uh, can uh, can do the move in the right direction and and stand with our allies. Well, yeah, that, that's concerning if all of that's true. I mean, certainly one thing we've learned about Putin is that he, he probes for weaknesses and then, you know, he's, he's empowered by that. He, he seizes on that. So if we're showing weakness at a time like this, that does not bode well, does it? Well, no, when, when we make concessions like this, um, when, we, when we tell Putin that we are not going to send a troops, as the U.S. and, and Canadians have, it, it's, it's rewarding bad behavior. Um, this is, you know, we've been watching Vladimir Putin now for uh, nearly 22 years. Um, there is a pattern that has emerged. What he does, he acts like a, a, a schoolyard bully. Um, he threatens, he punches, he threatens again. Uh, and every time he threatens, we seem to, you know, give him, uh, you know, if he, he asks, uh, 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 he, he, you know, he, we, we, we seem to be appeasing him at every sort of turn. And when we do this, we enable that uh, that sort of behavior. And so, what we need to start doing, and I think we've, we've a lot of us have been saying this for a number of years, is that you need to stand up to this sort of behavior. Um, the only thing that Vladimir Putin understands, uh, and the only language he understands, is strength and power. Um, you know, uh, he, he when you give him an inch, he, he takes a mile. And um, and so. You know, standing up is what we need to do um, if we want to stop this sort of behavior. Well, should that mean admitting Ukraine into NATO? Well, that's, uh, you know, that's the million-dollar question. Uh, you know, I, I think that eventually we need to consider this. Look, you know, Ukraine is an independent, sovereign nation. It's, it's you know, we're not imposing. We didn't send Canadian troops there to train uh, Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, we didn't impose that on them. The Ukrainian... Right. Government people have asked for this. Um, you know, their aspiration is to join the West. It is to join NATO. It is to join the democratic community of nations. And, you know, if they're asking to join NATO, I don't, you know, we need, really need to strongly consider that. Um, you know, the fact that Vladimir Putin plays himself off to be a victim, that NATO is somehow imperialistic in its intentions, it's trying to, it's threatening Russia. NATO is not that organization. NATO is a purely defensive organization. Um, and so when, when Vladimir Putin makes these claims, we need to understand that, that um, this, is, this is just posturing. And, you know, if we want to strengthen our democracies as, you know, the, the summit of democracies this week, you know, they're focusing on this issue. If we want to strengthen our democracies, we need to embrace and protect those nations that do want to become more democratic, who, who want to, sh- who do share our values. And we need to help them develop. That means protecting them from uh, governments like Vladimir Putin's. You know, we've seen what's happened in Belarus over the past number number of years, over the past decade. 
Uh, this is a country that has turned towards Vladimir Putin. It is a one of the most repressive nations today in the world. Um, there are hundreds of people who have been beaten and tortured and, and put into jail. Um, this is the sort of behavior that Vladimir Putin supports. And so Ukraine, when they turn to us and ask for support, we need to give it to them. So, so I think that NATO membership is something that we do in the long term need to consider, perhaps not today, but certainly in the, in the future. Yeah. With regard to the situation with China and similar challenges with regard to their aggression, belligerence, but one issue, and, and you and others have raised the alarm over this, we've talked about this, it's a big part of what uh, Disinfo Watch is, is all about, warning about this. Uh, we have a story this week that CSIS has directly warned the government that China's disinformation efforts have become more sophisticated, frequent, and insidious to try to exert pressure in other countries through media outlets, as apparently they're trying to do in Canada how worrying is this, first of all? Well, it's, it's deeply concerning. Uh, you know, there, there are several level, levels to uh, Chinese influence operations in Canada. Um, you know, there's Chinese state media, which is, uh, you know, quite frankly, it's, it's unsophisticated, it's clumsy, uh, but it is used by uh, Beijing's allies, its, its supporters, its proxies here in Canada to legitimate, to legitimize uh, their their pro Beijing uh, views, um, but then there are, there are other forms of influence operations that use uh, Chinese language media, for example, um, that use private messaging platforms, social media, to promote disinformation uh, in this country. And uh, at Disinfo Watch, we just released a report uh, about about two weeks ago, um, outlining some of the uh, in types of influence operations that we saw during the. The federal election, and there was uh, we, we what we observed was a, a clearly coordinated effort to spread disinformation about the Conservative Party and its platform, which was very critical of the Chinese regime, right. and specifically one candidate in Vancouver, Kenny Chu, who in the summer of last or in June of last year introduced a private members bill uh, that would introduce a foreign. Uh, register foreign agents registry. Um, now, this was a, a piece of legislation that was uh, agnostic of any sort of ethnicity. There was no no single country was was named in it, uh, but the legislation would allow the government to identify specific um, malign uh, countries, you know, China, Russia, and, and Iran, and anyone who was profiting from uh, advancing their interests would have to register. And uh, that uh, legislation, Kenny Chu's legislation was manipulated, it was completely distorted, and it was suggested that the legislation was anti-Chinese somehow, xenophobic, and targeting the Chinese-Canadian community, uh, which is completely false. But, uh, but that information, and that disinformation, rather, um, spread rather widely in, in various uh, cities and towns and in communities across Canada. And, um, you know, there's no way to measure the impact, whether that's uh, one reason why Kenny Chu was not re-elected, but the fact that these coordinated efforts are happening, it's, uh, it seems to be a part of this larger operation that's uh, very much aligned with uh, Beijing's uh, uh, intentions and, and motivations and, and the, their goals here in Canada. Does it seem as though we're starting to take this more seriously? Or is it your concern that we're still... I don't know, either downplaying this or, or not responding as we should. What, what's your sense of whether this is resonating, whether Ottawa is taking this seriously? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think our intelligence community has been taking it very seriously and has been doing an excellent job of monitoring 
uh, foreign influence and, and disinformation operations over the past number of years. Uh, I think that this government has been reluctant to even acknowledge the fact that that these operations are happening. Um, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliament, this is an all-party, non-partisan committee that looks at our intelligence activities. Um, they warned in, in their last, last annual report that the government isn't taking this threat seriously. Um, and so, you know, we've stood up a, a couple of uh, organizations within government. There's a what's called the G7 Rapid Reaction Mechanism within Global Affairs. This is a, a group of about four to five people who, are, who work very hard on this issue to monitor uh, foreign influence and disinformation operations. But it's uh, anyone's guess where that information goes, their analysis. Where does that go? We, we don't know. Um, what we really need is a whole of democracy and whole society approach to this. Uh, we need to start working to uh, educate, starting with our children and upwards, um, to provide them the proper tools, the, the cognitive tools that allow them to identify um, foreign influence when, it, when it's coming or, or disinformation and to make the, the, the right choices um, when it comes to media, you know, certainly social media. And this is becoming more critical as, you know, the years go by and the more reliant that we become on, on technology and, uh, and the Internet. So, uh, and, and we also need to make sure that we have the tools in place to uh, detect these more broadly with the media, with our uh, elected officials to detect foreign influence and reject it when, when we see it. Right now, we're, we're not doing any of that. And so there's a lot more work that needs to be done if we want to build a more resilient democracy and protect ourselves against these efforts. Absolutely. We'll leave it there. Uh, Marcus, appreciate the insight as always. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Anytime, Rob. Thanks All for best. having uh, Marcus Kolga, uh, Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, their Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, mcdonaldlaurier.ca, and also uh, founder of the disinfowatch.org projects. Well, back in uh, March of 2020, working from home became the reality for the vast majority uh, of Canadians. And it wasn't something that we'd ever really seen on a large scale before. Probably wasn't something that a lot of people had even considered before. Obviously, technology made that a lot more feasible for a lot of people. But even still now, almost two years into this pandemic, working from home is the reality still for uh, a lot of Canadians. Of course, some jobs lend themselves better to that than others. But what are the unintended consequences of all of this? What does the future hold for working from home? What does it mean for where you work, how you work, what you're paid to work? All of these questions. I don't know if we really fully considered it. It's really something uh, our next guest has been uh, thinking about, writing about, fielding questions about. Had a great piece over the weekend at uh, FinancialPost.com. Uh, about all of these potential unintended consequences. Uh, joining us on the line is Howard Levitt, uh, employment and labor lawyer, the author of six books, including The Law of Dismissal in Canada. He's a senior partner at Levitt Sheik. Howard, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, like I say, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm back at the office, as you note in your piece, you've been back at the office for a long time, but a lot of yes, Canadians still I barely left. <laughs> yeah, that's what it sounds like. Maybe that's the exception, though, isn't it? It's still the reality for many workers right now. It is, but they're soon going to be at a point where a worker is going to be able to say, when it has to come back to work, you know what? Working from home is a term of my employment. You could have called me back a year ago. Offices were allowed to be open 
over a year and you right. didn't call me back. So the expectation initially was because you couldn't legally be open, therefore we have to work from home and we'd be called back when we could be. Well, we could have been for many, many months and we weren't and now it's too late. Right. So, you know, at what point, uh, you know, can can workers, can employees say, you know what, I would rather continue this. I like working from home. I'm able to work from home. I would prefer to work from home. Well, it's not a matter of their preference. That is entirely irrelevant. Mm -hmm. It's not whether they are better off working from home more productive working from home do a better job working from home, that is also legally irrelevant because it's an employer is entitled to hire unproductive employees and have them work in unproductive working conditions. That's up to the employer, subject to not breaking the law in any respect and making sure the workplace is safe. The issue is, what is the term of employment? Most employees aren't working from home historically. Right. They've worked from the office. So that's the term of their employment. And the worker and the employer can't suddenly make them work from home instead that would have been a constructive dismissal similarly if somebody's hired on the basis they're working from home as some people historically have been then if the employer says as some have tried to do in my own practice you're starting from the office from now on i want to see you here i want you to be supervised i'm unhappy with the working from home they can say no no that's not the deal we had it's a constructive dismissal so this is a bit anomalous people are hired on the basis of working from the office they then have to be sent home for legal reasons. In other words, offices could not, were not permitted to operate with people in them because of COVID. And the understanding was when that changed, they'd return to the office. Well, that's changed a long time ago and they've not returned to the office. So at what point does working from home become a permanent term of their employment, allowing them to refuse to return to the office? And that I think we're around the tipping point right now. Yeah, and you know, there's an interesting question you've been asked, and you know, and, and it speaks to some of these these challenges, right? I mean, can an employer pay somebody less who works at home? Well, here's the story: once they have the right to return to the office, an employee wants to continue working from home, the employer can say you can return to the office at full salary, but if you want to work from home. I'm prepared to let you at some stipulated lesser amount. And if the employer protests, if the employee protests, the employer can say, well, fine, then come back to the office tomorrow, full salary. So the employee at that point has a bargain Mm -hmm. to make. They can either agree to a lower salary or they can return to the office. And if they refuse to return to the office and they won't take the lower salary, they've resigned. Wow. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, you, you give an extreme example of somebody who moved to Costa Rica and was working remotely. But I do think that people have, you know, this has affected the decisions they make. Where do I need to live to work at this not, job? It's, right? not extreme, it's not an extreme it's oh, really? example. It's an example I gave in my column, but I'm hearing it all over the place. Wow. People are moving to India, back home to India, or if they're from India. They're moving to Costa Rica. They're moving to Panama, Nicaragua, uh, the States. They're moving where their kids are, where they happen to be located. They're moving to the country. They're moving all over the world. They're moving back to the Philippines because it doesn't matter where they live. But here's the problem. The employer could say, take a 25% pay cut. Yeah. And they say yes. And then they think, well, you know what? Maybe I can find a Costa Rican who will do it for 10% of the amount of salary I'm paying this person. They're not here anyway. What do I care where they're from? Right. 
it becomes irrelevant to me. Maybe 10% still, but maybe 20%. Instead of paying this person 80,000, I can get someone for 15,000 a year. I'm saving $65,000 per employee. And when that employee's employment ends, they say, well, Costa Rica was a good idea. Let me pick someone remote again at a lower salary. Or they won't even wait. They'll just say, you know what, I'm terminating you now, and I'm going to hire a Costa Rican instead. So we'll pay a six months pay, but I'm getting $65,000 lower income forever. Yeah. So that's the risk employees are running when they make it clear to the employer how easy it is to have them work remotely. And the Bank of England warned of this about eight months ago, and they said, listen, British people, understand, we're, that's what's going to happen, and we're going to have an economic problem, a tax problem, and a labor market problem. We're going to lose good jobs, and we're going to lose a good tax base. So watch what you wish for. That's an interesting point. Now, I want, from an employer's perspective, and if an employer has a workspace, uh, an office, a lease, all of that, they, they want people here. They don't want empty offices and empty desks. But in certain situations, then, if, if employers, if businesses can downsize, if they can save money on, on their footprint by having workers working remotely, is, is that something that a lot of businesses are looking at? Well, they're finding it, those that are finding it works for them are considering that. Others are saying, well, it works for a little while, but then these, uh, I have employees who I've never met. Yes, exactly. They worked for two years. I've, ever, I've only seen them on a Zoom meeting and sometimes just with their video off with an avatar representing them. Who knows what, they're, what, what mm-hmm. they look like? I don't have any relationship to them. So when it comes time to terminating people, who do you think is going to get terminated? People they have a relationship with for 10 years or people they've never even met. It's anonymous. Right. And that, There's yeah, no loyalty yeah. either way. Exactly. They don't have loyalty to the employees. The employees don't have loyalty to them. Yeah, that's the thing, because that's kind of the reverse. And we can imagine a situation where the boss is saying, come back to work. The employee says, nah, I like being at home. But what about that opposite, where the employer is saying, look, this is easier for us to have you all at home. And, and you got workers they saying, no, I, I want that opportunity. I want to come back to work. I want to build those relationships. That's key to my success, or it's key to, it to my job security. In the old days, we'd have the corner office where you'd have a real opportunity to be the next president. Mm-hmm. You'd have the main office where you have an opportunity to get promoted to be a manager. But you have the satellite office where you had no opportunities at all because you had no face time with the boss or the people making the decisions on bonuses and promotions, on, who, on succession planning. Working from home is a new, cor- is a new satellite office. There's no relationship. There's no opportunity. There's no FaceTime. You might be better than the persons in the next office of the president, but they don't know that. And they don't have the relationship with you. They don't have the loyalty to you. You're not going to get that promotional opportunity. People, Canadians are saying in large numbers, we love working from home. We want to continue. I think it's extremely short-sighted. I think you raised some important issues. We'll leave it there. Howard, uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Anytime. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Howard Levitt, uh, senior partner at Levitt Sheik, an employment uh, and labor lawyer. They have offices in Toronto and Hamilton. And yeah, there may be the exception. He says basically by May of 2020, they had everybody back in the office. He's also the author of uh, numerous books, including Law of Dismissal in Canada. So as he writes, looking ahead, what will working from home ultimately beget? 
unemployment, reduced salaries, the transfers of jobs abroad, and an underclass of employees far removed from decision-making and promotional opportunities. So, yes, there's the convenience of working from home that clearly, I think, as he spoke to, and surveys have shown that, that, that a lot of Canadians like that. But there are consequences to that. Anyway, so you want to weigh in on that, whether you were working from home, still are working from home, would prefer to, would prefer to be back in the office. You know, I'm probably, I, I would imagine, like a lot of folks that, you know, having worked from home for, for many months, uh, there was some relief in getting back to the office, but also some aspects of it that you kind of miss. There is an ease from working from home, the convenience of it, not dealing with the commute, all of those things. But there is a lot of value, I mean, especially in what we do in being here physically, and I would imagine in a lot of jobs. Now, obviously, you know, for a lot of people, it was uh, working from home is, was never an option. You know, shortly before the pandemic, my daughter got a job at uh, McDonald's. She was still in, in high school at the time. I mean, what are you going to do from home if you work in, in that kind of a setting? There are a lot of jobs where, well, how the hell do you work from home? You, you don't, you can't. It's not even an option. Well, all right, maybe this won't come as a big surprise, but a new report warns that food prices are going to climb even higher in the new year. Canada's food price report for 2022 warns that thanks to inflation and other factors, food supply chain disruptions, labor transportation issues, climate change, extreme weather, uh, that that's going to lead to higher grocery bills. Something we've already seen through 2021 and we'll see more of in 2022. Uh, This report, uh, done by researchers at Dalhousie University, University of Guelph, UBC, and University of Saskatchewan. Forecast of a 5 to 7% increase in food prices. That would be the highest in the 12-year history of this report. So joining us to talk more about uh, the findings here, what it all means, Dr. Stuart Smith, Associate Professor at the University of Saskatchewan, Team Lead and uh, Industry Funded Research Chair in Agri-Food Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan. Professor Smith, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Glad to be uh, able to join you today. Well, I mean, you know, it's not it's not good news you're bringing here, unfortunately. Right. Um, but yeah, obviously, look, I mean, inflation has been uh, certainly a, a big concern for Canadians this year, and it doesn't look as though things are going to get any better next year. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wish I was the bearer of, of good tidings as mm-hmm. we get close to the holiday season. But no, and I think consumers aren't going to be overly surprised. I mean, it's unfortunate that the increases are as high as, as what we're saying, you know, 5 to 7%. But consumers have seen meat prices and, and prices for other products increasing through the summer and fall. So it, I, I don't think this is going to come as a, as a big shock to, to most Canadians. No, probably not. Um, and, and there's a lot of factors here, though. And I think Canadians see it, Canadians feel it, and they, they know that it's happening. But I think maybe we're still trying to understand why. Like, what, What's driving all of this? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's it's not just one factor. The, you know, you touched on a few there. So we've we've had some, some adverse weather effects that have, have hit the yields in, in places in Canada, but, but also other places around the world. We've We've still got the lingering or effects of, of COVID on the supply chain, on transportation, and on 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 production side of things. We've got disruptions to the 
to the transportation corridors through the, the southern interior of BC and 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 also there's a, a the impacts of labor shortages I, through the the foreign worker program for fruit and vegetable uh, production and harvesting but but also there's a shortage of, of skilled semi drivers so so that slows down the the movement of food products from from point A to B and so you you combine all of those together then you sort of have that that perfect storm of um, negative impacts on on for you know on food prices and and we're going to see that you know i, I suppose it's going to vary in terms of what kind of food we're talking about, what kind of food products, and also where people are buying them, right? So there's obviously the impact on grocery stores, but this also includes restaurants. And, you know, we were just talking to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Restaurants have faced some real challenges, so they got to pay more for the food that they serve. They're having to pay more to try to attract staff, and that's been a real challenge. So restaurants in particular are where we're going to see a lot of this, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. I, I heard... Uh the president of a of a food company speak last week and he said normally that the margins in the restaurant industry are six to eight percent and for the last 12 to 15 months they've been at a negative two to plus three percent so you know so so margins are are razor thin and, and some retailers are staying open but losing money so you can understand how businesses will have to increase their prices a little bit just to to be able to stay in business uh, I mean, you know, dairy, we know dairy prices are going higher. That's something that's obviously strictly regulated in Canada. So that was announced recently. Uh, so that's going to be a factor. Uh, you mentioned meat prices. I would imagine some of these issues, a lot of this is going to affect fruit and vegetables. I mean, are there any sectors of the food economy that are relatively unscathed here? Well, we're we're estimating that meat prices will be one of the lowest categories in the coming year. But hmm. The downside of that is that meat prices jumped by nearly 10% in the past six months. So, so the, you know, we're paying a higher price already, but the, we don't expect meat prices and seafood prices to increase much more than, than they maybe already have. Is there anything that I mean that that governments can do to to help consumers here? Is there anything consumers themselves can do when it comes to choices or shopping around? Are we kind of powerless in the face of all of this? That's a great question. I think at the federal level, the the government needs to to decide what it wants to move by rail. Does it want to move oil or does it want to move food? Yeah. Because oil companies can pay a premium to have their product moved to market or to port and so that forces agriculture and food companies to to have to bid higher prices to to get access for their products so you know if we started moving oil by pipeline that would free up a lot of capacity on the railroads to 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 be able to move more food products as far as an individual consumer goes you know one of the things that that i see in grocery stores is the the higher prices with third-party labels so this would be, you know, gluten-free labels on meat products where there could actually never be any gluten in the meat product, um, organic labels or non-GMO labels. All of those labels come with a, a minimum of a 30% price increase. So if consumers yeah. want to save a few dollars, you know, every week they're buying groceries, stick to the conventional products because they're as safe and nutritious as all those third-party labeled products. I mean, there are... <laughs> 
you know, costs that, that governments incur or that governments force businesses to incur here. I mean, you know, things like the GST add to the price of goods. Obviously, the carbon tax, uh, that affects the consumer price. That can affect shipping costs. You know, so th- there are government regulations and taxes that play into to all of this. But would that make a huge difference, do you think, if the government stepped in and said we're going to reduce the GST or we're going to reduce the carbon tax? It would probably have a, a, a little bit of an effect. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that it would go so far as to actually reduce the price of food products, but it might keep the, the increase, say, down a percent or a fraction of a percent. So you're right. I mean, all of these different things, that you know, the taxes and, and all these aspects, certainly. You know, another one that comes in that, that doesn't get discussed a lot is um, the theft of food. Right. I mean, you've you've maybe heard stories about grocery stores having to put in security guards because people are, you know, the the rates of theft are up. And so that factors in as well. Right. Yeah, it does. So unfortunately, not a lot of good news in this report. I mean, is it possible to look beyond 2022? Do we feel like a lot of this? These are short term trends or is this something we fear could persist? Well, I think I'm hopeful for a couple of things that. You know, the, the issues with COVID sort of uh, fade away over the next couple of months. And by spring, um, we're not, supply chains and production aren't impacted by any of those aspects anymore. And, and ideally, you know, the federal government can make some, some changes to the foreign worker program, which makes it easier and faster for, for those workers to, to get into Canada and, and uh, all the paperwork that needs to be done. If that can be... Um, sped up then then i think you know a couple of factors can can really be sort of minimized in the potential impacts they'll have on food prices going into 2023 all right well fingers crossed thanks we'll hope for the best uh we'll leave it there professor smith thanks so much for joining us here today much appreciated my pleasure have All a great best. afternoon uh that is uh dr stuart smith associate professor university of saskatchewan chair in agri-food innovation one of the contributors uh, to this report uh, looking at what we can expect in 2022, not a lot to get excited about here. Canada's Food Price Report 2022. So all of those factors, and it's a lot of factors, and it all adds up to higher prices. Uh, we won't see as big increases when it comes to meat. I guess we're looking for silver linings here. In fact, the, you know, the projections here that meat prices are going to be pretty close to flat in 2022. The bad news is that's coming off uh, a year where we saw big increases. So that's... Even that's not a lot to get excited about. Although, I, one thing you raised, which is really interesting, and I've heard a lot of it in the whole conversation around inflation and cost of living and cost of everything, is pipelines. And we don't often make that link. But that's such a huge point uh, that lack of rail capacity is a big factor. Why is there a lack of rail capacity? Because oil companies have to rely on rail and can afford to pay a premium. And that blocks out other producers. So that's an important one that maybe we don't talk enough about. There are a lot of good reasons for pipelines, but we don't often hear the cost of food as one of them. Maybe it should be. Look, it's no secret. I mean, 2020, 2021 have been very challenging years, very difficult years uh, for small businesses. And even as things have improved, that presents new and different challenges for small businesses. Like right now, the challenge of finding staff, being able to meet demand. 
According to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, in a new report titled Labor Shortages Are Back with a Vengeance, more than half of small businesses cannot get all the staff they need. Now, it seems almost counterintuitive because, you know, obviously unemployment numbers are improved, but there's still a lot of unemployed Canadians. And yet we've got fairly widespread labor shortages in the economy. So can we match up those unemployed Canadians and those businesses so badly seeking staff? What is the solution? Well, joining us to talk more about uh, these challenges and possible solutions to the problem, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Simon Gaudreau, the VP of National Research with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Simon, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on the show. So, I mean, I, I gave the overview of, you know, what the numbers look like. More than half of small businesses cannot find adequate staff. Is there a simple answer to the question, why? Well, it's, uh, I would say it's a... Uh, different uh, answers to uh, the question because um, it's a complex complex issue. Uh, you had right before the pandemic a situation where um, in Canada we have an aging population, so we were headed that way even before the pandemic. Um, most workers actually leaving the job market because they are retiring than new workers entering the job market. So it's leading to an increasingly uh, challenging situation for employers across Canada. But on top of that, when the pandemic started, of course, it impacted uh, things in a big way. And uh, initially, you had uh, entire uh, parts of the economy that were being shut down, and then you had to restart. But in the meantime, people uh, took different decisions based on their personal situation and sectors were also impacted in different ways. So the pandemic complicated things even more. And that's why we're ending up in a current situation where you have so many employers in Canada and in Alberta struggling to find the right workers. Well, and is it worse in certain parts of the country? Is it worse when it comes to certain kinds of businesses? I mean, can we break it down that way? Yeah, so we do find differences uh, across uh, the provinces and uh, the industries. Uh, For example, uh, in Alberta, you have uh, uh, 46% of businesses that are directly impacted by labor shortages. And that's our direct measure. So on top of that, you have to add 19% that have all of the staff they need, but at a significant additional cost to their business. In other parts of the country, uh, the the 46% that you have in Alberta is a bit higher. For example, in BC, you have 59% of businesses struggling there. uh, And uh, you have, uh, generally speaking, about half of uh, businesses uh, that are directly impacted by labor shortages from one province to to the other. When it comes to the industries, uh, you have certain industries, uh, certainly where uh, it has uh, impacted them uh, more. Uh, you can uh, you can think, for example, about the hospitality industry, uh, where uh, the impact has been uh, very significant. And in that case, it's because of the different uh, government restrictions that were put in place uh, during the pandemic. And uh, when, uh, as an as a worker, you're never too sure if you're going to be able to have a job next month or in the next quarter, and then it opens up and then it locks down again. Uh, you might think it, think about it twice and decide to uh, start a new career and leave the industry. So that's where a lot of employers, unfortunately, find 
uh, that's a, the situation they find themselves in. Uh, it's really challenging now to find any, uh, any staff, let alone qualified staff. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting because, yeah, I think a lot of people assume there's an easy answer here that workers or, or that businesses need workers. There are a lot of unemployed Canadians still that we should be able to to match that up. But I think what you just laid out shows that it's it's really not that easy, is it? It's not that easy. And, you know, one of the uh, easy answers that uh, sometimes uh, people have for employers is, oh, well, just raise wages and you'll have plenty of candidates uh, knocking at your door. Actually, we've asked that question to our members um, in our recent survey, and uh, 82% of small businesses said, yes, we did indeed raise wages, and 47% said, well, actually, you know what? Uh, it was not helpful. And so we wanted to know why, and uh, most of them uh, told us, actually, uh, it's because there aren't any applicants. So uh, you can try to work on the wage incentive, but if there's no one to incentivize at the end, uh, it's making things, you know, very complicated. Yes, there are certain um groups uh, in the population that uh, could uh, contribute in the labor force. We need to make more efforts to, uh, you know, to reach out to those uh, groups that have been um, uh, further away from the job job market. Uh, And so that can certainly be done. You have also Canadians that may have decided to retire uh, during the pandemic, uh, but might be interested in starting a second career, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. part-time that could help a local business. Uh, What can we do for these people? Well, in our report, for example, we suggest uh, that uh, maybe you could make their work hours tax-free. Like if you're 60, 65, you've contributed all your life through a first career, you're willing to give a hand there, uh, start a part-time uh, uh, job uh, to help a local business, why will, you, uh, will we tax you to, uh, to uh, the extreme? So we're suggesting to uh, look at tax breaks for these people. But the top two measures we really... Uh, that really struck us as being uh, most uh, successful were uh, actually automation. There was a, a surprisingly high number of businesses uh, automating. And when we talk about automation, you know, people sometimes they talk about, they think about robots or it's nothing sophisticated like that for most businesses. It's just basically moving to software sometimes or just uh, implementing some sort of technology in your business that will reduce your reliance on labor. And the other one that was um, really successful for businesses is uh, the use of the temporary foreign worker program, uh, which is a program that allows businesses to recruit uh, foreign workers to uh, to uh, fill some uh, some some gaps in uh, their uh, their business, and unfortunately, the program hasn't been working very well. And uh, the recent uh, past, and we're uh, also uh, formulating some improvements that could be put in place. Uh, and we are asking governments to uh, consider, uh, for example providing the workers uh, on the temporary foreign worker uh, program with a path to permanent residency. These uh, workers could stay in Canada and keep contributing to the local economy and help uh, fill uh, the needs of uh, of businesses. So those are just a few ideas, uh, but there's no silver bullet, of course, to solve labor shortages. Well, and, yeah, I mean, look, the Temporary Foreign Workers Program, I, I think it's been necessary, as you know. I mean, it's it's been controversial, right? And it's back to those those issues, the perception that you're taking job opportunities away from, from Canadians or that, that wages are being driven down. How would you respond to those concerns? 
Yeah, I think, once again, uh, this is one measure uh, among a set of measures. I've talked about, uh, you know, um, making sure that uh, those experienced Canadians that are willing to start a second career, that they can join uh, the job market, making sure that uh, we have uh, good training programs uh, so uh, our youth and uh, workers who have lost their job during the pandemic, that they can uh, be trained uh, on uh, the, the, the job by uh, local employers. Uh, so you have a win-win situation there. But I will go back to uh, what I was saying earlier, which is in many, many cases, it's about demographics and there are simply not enough applicants. So um, uh, at the end of the of the day, we want to make sure uh, that in Canada, uh, we have uh, the workforce that we need to support our standard of living. We need uh, to offer those uh, critical services to be able to um, create or uh, make those goods that Canadian rely, Canadians rely on on their day-to-day uh, lives. So uh, we're really uh, in a critical situation right now where uh, there are simply not enough workers to fill the need of the, uh, the, the uh, labor market. And uh, we need to look at uh, solutions like the temporary foreign worker program, but also solutions like automation, uh, looking at uh, incentivizing uh, more uh, Canadians uh, to uh, rejoin the job market. So it's an, again, it's a mix of solutions. Uh, yeah, you mentioned incentives. I wanted to ask you about disincentives because, you know, there's a concern that some of the supports that were there for people who were out of work or couldn't find work, I mean, EI, obviously, but other programs like CERB, that those created a disincentive. It's, is that still a, a problem, do you think? Well, we're certainly uh, mentioning also in the report that uh, uh, the, 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 the EI program, um, it's it's it shall not discourage individuals from returning to work. Uh, and uh, it shall not be um, more um, uh, profitable uh, to, uh, to be on EI, for example, than to, uh, to uh, have a, a, a job at a, a local business. So it's, uh, it's the sort of things that uh, we uh, try to, uh, the sort of data that we're trying to share with uh, the government uh, making sure that they understand what situation uh, small businesses uh, are in, uh, their uh, their ability to pay also, their ability to compete uh, with uh, programs like uh, the, the EI program, uh, for example, and making sure that uh, it remains fair for Canadians. Canadians that need uh, the EI program can still uh, can still access it, uh, but at the same time that we have a system that does not uh, compete uh, uh, with the labor market in an unfair way. There are many opportunities right now for Canadians uh, willing to uh, uh, rejoin the job market, uh, and uh, we are certainly hoping that uh, the EI system that has undergone many changes uh, in the past 20 months uh, will uh, adjust itself to uh, the recovery and the recovering job market. Much more at uh, CFIB.ca. Simone, thank you so, uh, so much for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Simone Gaudreau is VP of National Research with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, CFIB.ca. So this is a big problem for a majority of small businesses at the moment, they say, uh, that higher wages have not been as effective, maybe as, as some have suggested they would be, in filling those gaps. But many businesses have done so as a way of trying to, to recruit staff. I mean, that seems like a real obvious one. And that's part of supply and demand, right? When there's a shortage of workers, that raises the value 
of those workers, hence higher wages. They want to see other changes opening up the temporary foreign workers program. I think that would be controversial. Uh, ensuring that uh, government support programs, be it EI or CERB, don't discourage individuals from returning to work. Uh, an interesting idea to encourage those who have retired, those over 65, uh, to be able to work these hours tax-free. And some other suggestions they make as well. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.